This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 32. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 926. Again, today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 32. Please stand in honor of reading God's holy and inerrant word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we might we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Aparagate and the woman named Demarius and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, this morning, we have the privilege to have a guest preacher with us, Andy Lee. 
Pastor Andy Lee currently serves as an associate English minister at Western Houston Chinese Church, where he primarily focused on small group and young adult ministry. He grew up in Houston, graduated from UT, and attended HCC for a couple of years in his 20s. Then he worked overseas in East Asia before attending seminary and transitioned to be a pastor. He has been married to his wonderful wife, Christine, for 16 years and has two young children, Evan, six, and Ari, who's five. In his free time, when he has free time, he enjoys drinking coffee, grilling hamburgers, and playing in the backyard with his children. Let's give a warm HCC welcome for Pastor Andy this morning. Well, thank you for that warm welcome, John. Really appreciate it. Uh, good morning, HCC. It's uh, so good to be here with you today. Um, you know, and I genuinely mean that because HCC really has a very special place in my heart. Uh, my family uh, is going here right now, my parents, my grandmother, extended family, and I've been really blessed by your staff, by Henry and, uh, or Pastor Henry now, sorry, Pastor Fred, uh, Pastor Joseph Chang on the Chinese side, and uh, actually your pastor Jason Tarn and I uh, go way back, uh, him and Teresa our dear friends. He actually gave me my first preaching assignment, which was here at HCC over 20-something years, 19 years ago, something like that, back in 2004 with the youth. And so this place is very special to me. And when I come back here and I look into the pews, and these have been the same pews for the last 40-something years, I see that you guys got rid of the brown couches in the back, though, but I kind of miss those. But um, when I come back here, I, I'm just always somewhat reminded of high school, uh, just largely because of my experiences here. And when I think about this place, I really do think about just really what the struggle in high school, what it meant to be a Christian in our culture. So, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, over 20 years ago, uh, one of the things that we used to do when we were in high school is there was like a period of time, I remember, where we would just wear nothing but like white t-shirts and like jeans. You know, some people wore jinkos. Y'all ever heard of those before? But other people wore the gap, you know. Um, and what we would do is we, we, we did this before Steve Jobs had the black turtlenecks. We did this as kind of like telling the culture, we're distinct from the culture. We're separate from the culture. We're very different from the culture. You know, there was a period of time also where we, uh, I remember we threw away our, our CDs. Do you guys remember CDs? Yeah. And uh, we used to buy them from Columbia House, like six for $10 or something like that. And then we'd throw them away in defiance and say, you know, this is what being Christian means. I'm going to give up my Nickelback CD. And, you know, you throw it in the trash. And, you know, and uh, I'm just kidding about the Nickelback CD. But um, that's what it meant for us to, to say we're distinct from the culture. And, you know, it's funny because many years later, even today, especially in our political climate, I think that th this is the same question that we're facing, uh, that we faced in high school when we were only 15 then. And the question is, how do you be a Christian in a culture like ours today? I mean, how can we be the kinds of believers that can protect ourselves from being sucked into the culture while at the same time being engaged with the culture, wooing the culture, telling the culture to come to us because we ultimately have the answer here. This is what this passage, the famous passage that Paul addresses to Mars Hill is going to talk about. And this passage is remarkable because Paul is a remarkable example 
of being that kind of Christian who says that he can engage the culture as well as anyone, and yet he is distinctive. He is faithful to his own message. And it was this confidence that he had, this balance, this winsomeness, this strange attractiveness that made Paul such an effective evangelist. And the question is, how can we do that today? This is what this passage is going to be talking about. Paul had confidence in the gospel, but the reason he had confidence in the gospel is because of three things. Paul was able, number one, to be critical of the culture. But number two, he was also confident in his own message. But number three, when he did all these things, he was courageously kind to the people. Paul was very, very critical, but he was very, very confident. He was very, very kind. And if we want to be effective, we need to do those three things as well. So what does it look like? Well, first, what does it mean to be critical of the culture? And if we look in this passage in Acts, Paul has been on his missionary journey, uh, second one. He's been traveling all over the place, Thessalonica. He's seen the Bereans. And now he's made his way to Athens. You know, Silas and, Tim and Timothy are still behind, and so Paul gets to Athens. He's there alone, and he's waiting for his friends to get in, so he just decides to walk around, you know, kill some time, tour the city, because it's Athens, you know, it's an amazing place. Because, you know, if you walk the streets of Athens, anybody been to Greece before? Okay. Yeah, if you're a political junkie, okay, this was the place to be. It was the political capital of the world. The Acropolis, which was a rocky citadel, seated high on a hill. Just the beauty, the architecture of it. It was a nod to Western civilization and Western democracy. And you would have just been reminded of it every time you looked at it. And then as he was walking around, he would have seen amazing art everywhere. When he turned to the right, he would have seen a statue of Tiberius, who was the second emperor of Rome. And then when he looked ahead, he would have seen a statue of Hermes, which is where, you know, you get the athlete's foot. He's got the winged feet, you know, the, one of the Greek gods. And then when he turned to the left, he would have been like, oh, oh, you know, seeing, he would have seen some male body parts that he shouldn't have seen, but, but he, and he probably would have walked forward, but he, he still would have been surrounded by fine art. And as he walked, he would have been listening to the crowds talking, and he would have passed up students and teachers. They would have been debating in the town square, talking about the most important issues of the day. There would have been very exciting intellectual debate, stimulating debate, just ideas and knowledge flowing out everywhere. It would have been the center of learning. And so to be in Athens at that time would have been like being in D.C., New York, Boston, all rolled up into one. And so if you were there, what would you do? You know, I think a lot of people would go there. They'd be probably taking selfies, posting to IG, you know, because this is an impressive place. This is cool. We got to remember this place. But when Paul was there, he wasn't impressed, not at all. We're told that when he started to walk, something in Paul began to stir. It says in verse 16 that when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. Why does the scripture use this word? It's really interesting. Because, you know, he doesn't say, oh, I saw that painting, and I just, you know, I got triggered a little bit, you know. I saw this building. I saw the people. It annoyed me. The passage said, it doesn't say any of that. It says, Paul was provoked because he saw idols. 
So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, well, what did Paul see? I mean, what was Paul seeing that we're unable to see? You see, one of the mistakes that we believers often make is that we're often blissfully unaware of just how much spiritual activity is going on around this. I mean, you know, a big reason for that is because we ourselves, we're steeped in the culture. It's like being a fish in water. You ask a fish what's water, what, what's that? They don't know because we're in the culture. And so what we do is because we're in the culture and oftentimes we're told, hey, this culture, it's very neutral. You know, this culture is completely objective. But Paul doesn't see that because he knows what God has told him and his spirit's telling him is that behind every single song, every single movie, every single fashion choice, every single political party, every single business, every single corporation, every single school, every single teacher is a message of value and ideology. Very few things are objectively neutral in our culture. And see, this is one of the main reasons why, as Christians, we're afraid to engage the culture, right? Because we often think that, oh, the culture is neutral, and when I go in there and I have a message, I'm the only person coming in with a message. I'm the only person coming with values. I'm the only person coming with thoughts. But that's absolutely not true at all. We're not the only ones trying to push the message. And the truth is, because we live in a pluralistic society, there are a plurality of religious views surrounding us every single day. You know, I remember a pastor, he was talking about this one time. He said, you know, if I came up to this pulpit right here, and I'm standing here, and I'm telling you, you know something, HCC, if you're struggling in your relationship today, let me just tell you, I think cheating is okay. I think it's okay, especially just once, you know. As long as you're not married, it's even better. It's okay. It's also okay to have casual sexual relationships. It's really okay. What are you thinking right now? Uh, maybe this preacher shouldn't be up here, right? But if a preacher comes up and does that, that's exactly what we're thinking. But then if I, I put that message to uh, a jazzy hook, and I put a bass line to it, you know, and then I give you a music producer, and then I put it on television, and then suddenly, you know, you're like, oh, that's art. That's culture right there. You know, the person who does this best is Bruno Mars, you know. You ever listen to his songs? Like, he, he, he is the master of the D, G, E minor, C chord progression. You know what I'm talking about? The one that, you know, say, hey, you know, makes you, like, just increasingly attractive to people. You know, he's the master at that because he knows what music can do. His song construction, his melodies are actually impeccable. His musicianship is top-notch. But, you know, if you listen to his songs, I just remember his last song, Leave the Door Open, the song that won the Grammy Song of the Year. And when I first heard that song, I was like, oh, this sounds pretty good. Because I'm the kind of person that just listens to the melodies and I don't listen to the lyrics until I actually listened to what he was talking about. I'm like, oh, this is an ode, a worship to the, ca the greatness of casual relationships. That's what Bruno Mars is trying to say. And this is not objective. This is a religious view. He's pushing a religious view. He's pushing a value system on us. And just because it's done with art, it's masked. But the truth is, religious views are everywhere. We're surrounded by it. And this is why when Paul, when he's walking around Athens, he's not impressed. 
Because when he looked at Tiberius, that statue of the second Roman emperor, he's not just looking at a statue. He's not just looking at art. He's looking at a message that's saying to you, remember when Tiberius was president? That was the happiest time in your life, wasn't it? You know, taxes and crime were low. The economy was good. That's what he would have seen. And when he saw the phalluses on the the left side, it wasn't just a piece of subversive art, but it was a stimulant to remind the people, hey, remember the most exciting time in your life, the time that you felt most alive was when you were just having casual relationships with people. They are competing powers. They are idols. You know, we may not have those statues here today, but we have plenty of modern examples. We were just at a rock climbing gym, my wife and I, and we just saw crystals hanging in the the windows. We're surrounded by them. You know, we may not have Tiberius, but we get texts from our local politicians every single day. I have no idea how they got my email address. You know, we may not have phalluses, but we have these websites that are just completely terrible and abhorrent. We have movies just like that as well. We're, We're no different from Paul's time. And this is why when Paul goes up to the Areopagus, he looks at the people and he could say to them, straight to their face, the secular society and say, men of Athens, I perceive that you too are very religious. You're religious just like me. You're religious just like me. He knew that there was spiritual activity all around him. It was masked by culture. It was masked by art. It was masked by politics. It was masked by business. But it was every very much there just like it's there for us. So the question right now is, what about you, HCC? Are you aware of the spiritual activity that is happening around you? You know, in one sense... It may be eye-opening if this is not something that you've thought about before. But in another sense, it's freeing too, right? Because what Paul is saying is that as a Christian in a secular society, in a secular pluralistic society, that this should give us freedom because we shouldn't be embarrassed when we're pushing our views in the public square because everyone else is doing it. Why shouldn't we? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, Christian, don't be embarrassed. You are surrounded by religious views. Your views are just one of them. So be critical of your culture. That's the first thing. But secondly, Paul is also telling us not only to be critical of the culture, but he's also telling us to be confident in our message. Now, what does this mean? You know, when Paul meets the philosophers, his message to the Athenians is very interesting. It intrigues them. You know, part of it is because we're told in verse 21 that what they really spent most of their time doing is that they would just be telling and listening to to new things. Nothing except telling or hearing something new. So what that meant was when they took Paul in, they don't really have high expectations for them. You know, he was pretty dismissive. But, you know, Paul still goes. And Paul would not have gone unless he was extremely confident in the message that he was bringing to them. Now, why or how do we know that Paul was extremely confident about the message that he was carrying? I mean, how confident was he really? And the answer is actually right here. First, this passage tells us that he reasoned and dialogued with the culture. It says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Now the question is, did Paul go to church? Yes, he did go to church. He first went to the synagogues. But after that, Paul went out. He went out. He didn't stay at home and he wasn't watching Fox News or CNN or BBC or Al Jazeera or Epoch Times or whatever and just nodding along to whatever they're saying and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. He went out. And not only did he go out, you know, when he went out, it's not like he just said, okay, um, culture, here are the four spiritual laws. Take it or leave it. You know, the word reason here in the Greek is dialogamai. What do you hear in there? The word. Hear the word dialogue, right? Because what is a dialogue? A dialogue is not just you just telling somebody your message and then that's it. A dialogue is you sit there and you talk and you give your point of view and then you listen and then you listen to their premises and you listen to the assumptions that you're, they're making and then you go in and talk about why you feel like their premises or assumptions are faulty and then at the same time, they do that for you and then you have this intellectual exchange. And that's what Paul was doing and that proves that he must have been confident enough that the ideas that he had could stand up to the pressure of the day. But it's not only that. It takes a lot of familiarity and confidence as well. And remember, he wasn't just talking to like some guys at the local YMCA, right? The Stoics and the Epicureans, they were philosophers. And what that means is that he was actually not just dialoguing with regular people. He was dialoguing with the secular elites. And when he, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they were just not normal uh, people in society. They were actually like the deans and the professors of the humanities and uh, the, uh, you know, at the University of Athens, the liberal arts departments. And still, Paul goes up to them and he engages them. He's cool. He's confident. And he does this at the very center of the culture, which is the Areopagus, which is like going to the Apollo or going to MSG or going up to Capitol Hill. So the question is why? I mean, why or how can Paul be so confident in front of the elites? And the answer is this. He must have known that the gospel had what it take to answer the greatest questions of their day. He must have known that. And the way that he does it in here is brilliant. And we won't look at the form of the speech. There's no time for that. But just know that when he starts a speech, this is what he says. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now notice what he does here. The first thing he does is he goes into the culture and he speaks to them in a language that they recognize. You know, he doesn't go in there and he says, oh, you know, my sanctification has going, been going very well today, right? He takes, cultural, he takes cultural values they have. He takes cultural kind of pegs that he has and then he latches onto them and then he, di he dialogues with them using their culture. Do you know how to do that with secular society and secular culture? Do you know how to connect? That's what Paul is doing here. And it's not only that. It's not only the form of his message that's brilliant. It's also the substance of his speech. Because he's making here a very bold claim when he says to the unknown God. What he's saying, what is he saying? He's saying this. I noticed as I was walking that there's a statue here. And what this statue tells me 
is that it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It doesn't matter how put together you are. All of us have a deep emptiness. And this altar, your very own altar, is proof. It is proof that even though you have everything, it appears like you have everything that you need, deep down, you know that there's still something missing in your life. You know that deep down, that there's something that your culture still hasn't been able to provide, that all cultures are trying to seek right now, even if they don't know where to find it. And the only chance that we're going to be satisfied in our lives is to know this incredibly unknown God. Now let me ask you this question. Why is this so revolutionary? Why was this message so bold? Because if you go up to a modern person today, it's going to be just as offensive to them as it was to the Greeks. You know, have you ever gone up to a modern person and said, you know, hey, I know that you're searching for something deeper, something more meaningful in life, whether you know it or not. I mean, what do they say to you? Have you ever asked that question before? It's actually a very bold question. You're actually saying your life as you know it is really not enough. And that's what you're telling people. But that's what Paul did. So why was it so effective? This is what Francis Spufford said. He says, you know, what most modern people will tell you is they're going to say this. Why does everything have to have an ultimate meaning? Why? You know, and by the way, Francis Spufford, he's British, so I'm not going to use his accent. But, but this is what he says. This is the question that he asks. He says, why can't a sunset just be part of the mixed magnificent and cruelty of the indifference of the world? Why does it have to be a blessing? Or why does a meal have to be present, a present that you're grateful for, even though it came from Costco and it cost $2? Why can't sex just be the spectrum of experiences you get used to as an adult, it has to be, oh dear, oh dear, a special things that mom and dad do when they love each other very much. This is what our culture is asking us. And what Paul is saying is, do you know how to answer this? Do you know how to answer these questions? Because what he's saying is very formidable. He's saying, why can't we just enjoy our life and take life for what it is, to be a temporary and fleeting moment? Why does there have to be a meaning behind everything? Have you ever thought about this before? You know, it's not just our modern day that's asking this question. This is exactly what the Epicureans were asking. You know, back then, the Epicureans, what they were, were they were uh, secular agnostics. And what they used to say, their philosophy was, you ought to enjoy your life because it's the only one you've got. So the whole point of life is to enjoy it as much as you can. And so what Paul was facing back then is the same thing that we're facing today. And so the question is, how would you answer this? Well, Paul would answer it like this. He would say, that the Christian message resonated so deeply in his culture because it was utterly unique. It was completely different from anything that the philosophers had ever heard. Because the first thing he did was he told us that there's a God out there that's so much bigger, so much more powerful than the Greeks could ever imagine. Because, you know, the Greeks, they were just worshiping kind of like Zeus and Hermes and, uh, you know, all of these other Greek gods. Those Greek gods were kind of like us. 
You know, they were like humans. They got jealous. They fought all the time. But Paul is saying that the God that we know is so different from that. First, he said that our God is huge. He said this God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's saying he's huge. He's enormous. He's the creator of all things. And then he says, not only that, but this God is sovereign over everything. That he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and times and boundaries of their dwelling place. That means that this God is not only huge and created everything, every breath that you take, the chair that you're sitting in, all the things that you eat today are sustained by this God. He's big, he's huge, he sustains everything. But not only that, Paul says that this God is close and attainable. He says that don't worry because with this God, unlike your gods, this God, people can feel their way toward him and find him. He's actually not that far from each of us. He's not distant. We can find him. And even some of your own poets, even in your own culture, your culture has said, for we are his offspring, his children. He's saying, even in your own culture, you know this. Now, why is this amazing? This is amazing because if we do have a God that is so big and so huge, that's a creator of all things, sustains all things, but not only sustains all things, but is close to us, is very close to us, we can feel our way towards him, then that means that everything in this world is infused and shot with meaning. Because if there was a creator and he acted, then that means that everything that he did, everything he's doing has intent behind it. I mean, no artist just sits there in front of a sculpture and says, oh, I'm just going to randomly put my hands here and then whatever comes out, comes out, you know? There's intent behind everything. And if there is intent behind everything, then what Paul is saying is that life can't just be about enjoyment. He gives two reasons, or Spufford gives two reasons. First, if life is just all about enjoyment, then that's just very one-dimensional and shallow. You know, he says it best when he says this. You would think that if life is based on enjoyment, that the, hu the normal human condition of humanity is all about enjoyment, then that means that all life is about is about being a good-looking single between 20 and 35 with excellent muscle definition and or an excellent figure and a large disposable income. But he says that that's shallow because enjoyment is just one emotion that you're going to feel. You're going to feel boredom. You're going to feel curiosity. You're going to feel anxiety. You're going to feel irritation, fear, joy, despair. It's just one emotion. But not only that, he's saying that just to focus on life and just an enjoyment of life is also cruel because he asks the question, well, what about everybody else? You know, what about the 50-something-year-old woman who's trapped in a loveless marriage? What about the 15-year-old who's suffering from anxiety and depression or suffering from struggling with their identity? What about the person who just lost their mom and dad? 
if there is no God and life's just all about enjoyment, then there's no help coming. There's no help coming. It just amounts to a denial of hope or consolation on any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. In other words, St. Augustine called it just cruel optimism. The modern position, Paul is saying, does not get to the deepest questions and deepest needs of the heart. But Paul knows, and Paul would completely agree, because he knows that to focus a life on that is just complete nonsense. And that's why Paul could go to the culture with confidence, because he knew that our faith has the resources to meet the deepest questions of our culture. Because if there is a God far beyond our imagination that changes everything, the one who created the world and sustains the world, all of us are in him. In him, we live and move and have our being. And this is just one example of it. But this one example is why Paul was so incredibly confident that the gospel is the greatest hope of the world. He gives respect to the emotional needs, the emotional questions that the culture has. And he says Christianity has the resources to meet it. So the question that this passage is asking us is, what about you? And do you have this kind of confidence to bring it to the world? I mean, do you, do you have complete confidence that our message has the answers to the deepest questions that this world is asking us? And that's what this passage is asking. If you're sitting here today and you're not yet a believer in Christ, would you also consider the fact that maybe, just maybe, that the Christian message may have the answer that you're looking for today? That's the second thing. Paul was critical of the culture. He was confident in his message. But lastly, he was courageously kind to the people. Because, you know, in the end, even though Paul gets a hearing with the culture, you know, what does he end with? He ends with the resurrection, right? He says, you know, God, our God is great. He's big. He's huge. He's open to everybody. But just remember that at the end, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, see, when he gets to the resurrection, this is the point where people start to laugh. And people start to mock him. And so, you know, they start to laugh. They, they start to sneer. They, they hear about the resurrection. And they said, well, you know, that's fine, Paul. Thank you, you know. Well, we'll hear from you again. And at that point, Paul was asked to exit from their midst. And you see, what happened back then is really not that different from what happens now, right? Oftentimes, when you talk to a non-believer, oftentimes, they're like, yeah, your faith, it's good. I like it. I like, the, I like the morality of it. I like the way you live. I like the way you raise your children. But when you come down to Jesus and you say, well, the reason why we believe in what we believe is because we believe that a man died and then three days later, God rose him from the dead. And then that's when people stop listening. Oftentimes, that's when people stop listening. And, and things have not changed since then. And this is why when you are giving the gospel to, to, to people, what Paul is trying to say is don't forget that it was hard back then, it's hard now. Because the resurrection is a very hard thing to believe back then, and not much has changed. 
And so if you come up to a, a non-believer and you're discouraged by that, then two things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is that you will likely be kind to people, but you won't be critical or confident. You know, you, you just shrink back and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, this is my truth. That's your truth. You know, there's no such thing as truth. That's, that's, you'll be tempted to do that. But then on the flip side, the other temptation is you could also be tempted to say, well, I'm critical of the culture. I'm confident of my message, but I'm just not kind because I can't believe you don't believe this. You know, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And so it's possible to be one or the other. It's possible to go to the extreme. But what's amazing about Paul is that he doesn't do that because he knows that at the heart of it, whether you are too kind but not critical and confident or you are too angry uh, and you're critical and confident but you're not kind enough, Paul knows that at the center of it all, the reason why you're acting that, like that is because you don't have enough confidence in the gospel. You don't have enough confidence that the gospel itself is enough. And this is why the passage ends the way it does, because it wants us as believers to take heart, to be encouraged. Because it's saying, don't worry. You may not see results the way you want to see them right now. Because oftentimes we're looking for that short-sighted result. Sometimes you might see that because through Paul's courageous kindness, what does the passage say? It says that some men did join him and believe him, you know, Dionysius and Damaris. They did do that through Paul's winsome engagement. But you know, what the scripture is saying is, from where we stand now, we know that through Paul and his desire to winsomely and lovingly reach the culture, 200 years later, all of Rome, which was full of people who had no idea who Christ was, went from being a secular nation to a Christian one in just 200, 300 years. And that is the power of the gospel. And the question for us today is, do you think it could happen again? I mean, do you think it could happen again in our lifetime? I'll end with this thought. There's a man named Jonathan Charks. I don't know, some of you may have heard of him. He was a basketball writer and sports writer at The Ringer, which is a sports and pop culture website. And if you have heard, anyone here heard of him before? Okay, just a couple of people, okay. Um, his conversion story is pretty remarkable. He grew up in an atheist home, and he grew up doing a lot of things that young people do. He grew up partying, he grew up living for himself, and, you know, he did that into his 20s. And then one day, what he did was he, he said that he went to a rave, and he took a psychedelic drug. And then as he was dancing, he saw a V for Vendetta, which was a sign on the wall. And he realized that what he was doing was he was actually dancing and worshiping a demon. That's what he noticed, is that everybody was doing that. And so after that happened, what he realized is, oh my goodness, if there are demons, if there are idols out there, then what I have to do is I have to change. And so he began to reason and he said that if there are idols out there, if there are spiritual forces and powers and principalities behind everything the culture has, then that must mean that there is a God. And then he gave his life up to God. And over the years, he got married, he became a father, and he, he gained national prominence as a sports writer. And then a year ago, he discovered that he got cancer 
It was a very rare sarcoma. I think that only one in 25 million people have it. And so as he was dying of this cancer, he wrote two remarkable articles. The first one is The Long Night of the Soul, which was an article that he wrote about his own cancer and struggling with God through that. And he wrote another article called Does My Son Know You, which is about his sadness over the possibility of dying and leaving his two-year-old son and why Christian small groups and why the church is the answer that the secular culture needs and why it is the answer to our perpetual loneliness. And as he wrote these two articles, these articles were published on The Ringer, which gets millions of views and listens per month. And when he passed away last month, as Bill Simmons, who is the most popular sports writer in America, and his colleagues eulogized him on the national podcast, all they could talk about was his kindness his towering kindness, how he listened to people with remarkable care. How, because they're like, nobody does that anymore in our culture. But he would actually sit down and listen and ask how you're doing and what's going on. And he'd listen intently. And this person was utterly unique than anybody they had ever met. And because of that, because of his towering kindness, they realized that his kindness was inexplicable. It didn't make sense. And the only, the only way to explain his kindness was to talk about his faith, which he often talked about as well. And so because of his boldness and kindness, the premier pop cultural website in the nation was forced to wrestle with the gospel. And as a result, our culture was forced to wrestle with the gospel. His life was short but I imagine that his impact will be greater than we can ever imagine. And in the end, what this passage is telling us is that because the gospel is powerful on its own, it doesn't need political power. It doesn't necessarily need us to say, oh, if I don't do this, then it's never going to go out. The gospel is powerful on its own. Jesus is powerful on its own. The gospel is subversive in itself. It does not need political power to, to push its objectives. And if God is working in the world, and he is, then nothing is going to stop the advance of the gospel. Not even the gates of hell will prevail. Amen? This is what the scripture promises us. But it will require people who are courageously kind. It will require people who are critical of the culture. It will require people who are confident in the message because when we go out and we give the gospel to others, it changes us as much as it changes them. And in the end, that's what it means to witness well, to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's, that's, what, it will, that's what it means. So the question today that this passage is asking us is, would this passage say that about you? Are we doing those three things? Are we engaging with our culture, a culture that desperately needs the message that we have because of the confidence that we have in knowing what the gospel can do? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful message of the gospel, Lord. 
It says, even though all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God, Lord, because of the atoning work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that the creator of the world, the sustainer of the world, can be imminently close to us as our father, our brother, our friend. Father, thank you for the uniqueness of the message, this message that nobody else in the world has. Father, would this message be so compelling in us that we would be forced to share it with everybody we meet. We thank you. We love you for Paul. We thank you for Paul and his example to us on Mars Hill. May we go out and do the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.